0: Thank you, Alex, and for those choice of songs that we have sung. They're very apt for what the Lord would have us this morning. And as I was thinking about that, um, it's been impressed upon my heart, probably more so this week than others, that standing in this pulpit and being God's representative. As your pastor, elder, teacher, is no light thing. And uh, I just thank you for your faithfulness and coming out Sunday after Sunday. And uh, listening to the word of God. And especially from myself, who feels so unworthy to do this. And believe me, there are times when I tremble when I step these up these steps and uh, have done this morning and pray that the Spirit of God would use His Word this morning to speak to all of us. This morning we're going to continue in 1 Timothy and we'll read these verses from verses 12 to 17 of chapter 1 and then endeavor to explain it, and make plain the text that we have before us. Verse 12 of chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor, and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in belief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory, honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Trust that God will add a blessing to his word this morning and speak to us all. You know, one of the most motivating challenges in the Christian life often comes from hearing a testimony how the Lord has brought about his redemptive purposes in the life of another. As a younger believer, I used to devour biographies of men and women whom God used mightily. And I still love to read how God picks up ordinary people like ourselves and like myself and sometimes overtly wicked people and uses them for his glory. I really love those stories. And I know this is the same for you all here. I know you love those kind of stories too. And I'm moved by them. I well remember Our 2015 In-Step Conference when Todd Murray, our elective speaker, creatively told the story of God's grace impacting a wicked man named John Newton, the slave trader. This whole room was captivated in rapt and worshipful silence. You could kind of feel it. John Newton's testimony was reiterated in song and story and quotations from the man himself. And it left many of us wet-eyed and enthralled over God's grace in such a wicked man's life. It was empowering and strengthening to our faith. For me, I heard it, believe you me, I heard it at just the right time. I needed that testimony for my own spiritual nurture. And upon hearing how God's grace intervened in, in, in the life of this blatantly wicked man, my closing prayer on that day after John, Todd Murray spoke was that this trophy of grace would inspire us and would motivate us and that we would never be the same again. That was my prayer. That this man's testimony might be used of God, that we would be motivated to holiness and to be more motivated to pursue the holiness of God and service, to be in his service like never before for his glory. That was what my prayer was. Well, folks, here in our text we have another john newton kind of sinner giving his testimony saul of tarsus now the the great super apostle paul was also once a traitor of human lives he was once a kidnapper of men and women and children he was a man who captured people and consented them to chains and even to death just because they were christians He was a man who once blasphemed and persecuted the church of God. And as we think of this man, if it was left up to us, we would write him off, right? We would write him off. But here we see that God shows mercy and grace and love to this man, and then he uses him to build this church. How awesome is that? In His sovereign electing grace, God saves whom He wills, even the worst of the worst. Like Newton, like Saul of Tarsus, and like you and myself. This is so encouraging. So motivating to see the Lord using sinners saved by His grace and serving Him now to build His church, to build His kingdom. This is so motivating, or it should be. This testimony shows God in his grace spiritually transforming and empowering people just like ourselves, no different, for the service of the king of heaven. Imagine that. Think about that. But as we return to our text, we might well ask, but why did Timothy need the Apostle Paul's motivating testimony? It's a good question. Well, as we have seen, the Apostle Paul spent two to three years preaching in Ephesus, and then he went to Macedonia, which is Greece, and he left the church in the hands of this young preacher-pastor named Timothy. We read that in Acts chapter 19. So here was Timothy, a young man, his first pastorate, can we say, and in a church that was plagued with false teachers and associated problems with that. That's the historical context. And this resulted, of course, as we know in Ephesus and as we've been looking, in false doctrine, we see that in chapter 1. It resulted in disorder in the worship service. We see that in chapter 2. And we see the need to find and ordain elders. We see that in chapter 3. And then we come right through to chapter 6. It doesn't end. We see that Timothy needed to confront believers about materialism in chapter 6. So this man, this young man had a heap of issues to deal with and it was his responsibility. It was Timothy's job to confront these false teachers and their ensuing issues head on. But to add to the list, there were those in the church we read in chapter 4 verse 12 who considered this 30-year-old Timothy roundabout too young for the job. Nothing new under the sun, right? Right? Timothy truly did have a lot on his plate, and it also seems from reading the two letters together, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Timothy battled with discouragement. And of course we could say, who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? So therefore Timothy writes to encourage and motivate this preacher to continue to serve the Lord faithfully. Don't give up, Timothy. Press on. But he also wrote to Timothy to challenge him to challenge him to continue to grow in the Lord and to stand for the truth in spite of such opposition that was flooding in over him. And so we can ask in here, well, how was Paul going to do that? How was this older apostle experienced in the faith, a man of great intellect, a man of great theological convictions, and at this stage of his Christian life, a man of great learning? How was he going to do that? Was he going to give him a lecture on the well-grounded theological distinctives that Timothy already knew? No. Would he tell him to take some r &R and go and hug a tree so he can find himself and and build up his self-esteem, etc., etc.? No. Now, what Paul does here is he gives his personal testimony of how the Lord wrought a great miracle of saving grace in his own sinful life. That's what Paul does. He tells Timothy what Jesus had done through his grace and power. He says to Timothy, look at me, Timothy, look at what Jesus has done for me. That's what Paul is saying here in this testimony that we have read. Because Paul knew that if if Timothy could just catch a glimpse of how God had taken a man like himself with all his blasphemous and religious baggage and saved him by his grace and used him for his glory. If Paul could, if Timothy could just see that, then God could do a wonderful work through Timothy as well. That's what Paul's angle was. Folks, it's a wonderful thing to be able to give a testimony of God's grace in your life, isn't it? a wonderful thing matter of fact i would say it's the most important and most wonderful thing in the life to be able to express and to tell others of how god in grace has saved you i hope everyone here can do that and if you cannot do that with clarity i would suggest you better search your own heart to find if you are saved or not because if you're saved you should be able to give a testimony So this morning I want to spend some time to see what Jesus did in Paul's life so that we can see what he has done to and in and for us who are saved by God's abundant grace. So let us consider the power of God's abundant grace in the life of a sinner. We'll go to our first point, the sinner's testimony of a life without Christ. We see this at the beginning of verse 13 and verse 15. What we see here is Paul's own admission that he was a guilty man as charged when lined up with the commandments of the Lord or the law of God, okay? His deeds, his evil deeds included that of blasphemy. That is, he slandered and vilified the Lord Jesus who was God incarnate, God in human form, God in flesh. He slandered and vilified him. He refused to believe in Jesus Christ as God's Messiah, the one who was sent to redeem his people. He refused to believe that this Jesus was the one prophesied back from the Old Testament, which the apostle or Saul of Tarsus at that stage knew very well. His aggressive and blasphemous denial was mostly seen, of course, In his attack on any who follow the Lord. We could read about that in Acts chapter 9 and verse 4. He attacked them. He sought them out. And being guilty of these very things, he blatantly violated the first half or the first table of the law, the Ten Commandments that we have been dealing with over recent months, which deals with, as you will know by now, a man or a person's relationship with God. His blasphemy proved his failure to what? It proved his failure to love the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his mind, and with all his strength. The greatest command of all. Matthew 22, verse 37. And as a persecutor and as a violent aggressor, he was guilty of murder, hatred, and unspeakable and horrible acts of cruelty aimed at his fellow man. As we know, he rounded up Christians from all corners. He made it his goal in life to seek out Christians and do whatever it took to imprison them. Because he hated them. He rounded up these people. He was the terrorist of his day, can we say? His heart was full of threats and murder against Christ's followers. And as we see, he he passionately agreed to the stoning of Stephen that you read of in Acts 8, 1 and and, 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 and chapter 9, verse 1. And so in all this, Paul, or then known as Saul of Tarsus, he snubbed his nose at the second table of the law and that he failed to love his neighbor as himself. Matthew 22, verse 39. But to add to this dilemma, to to Saul's dilemma, was that he was a sincerely religious man. You get that? A sincerely religious man. In other words, he was zealous and earnest in what he believed. And we will know many people like that. But the problem was his religious sincerity did not save him it only proved that he was sincerely wrong and was lost in his sins so Saul who became Paul once was a deceived sinner a deceived sinner and he recounts to Timothy and his readers here to us this morning he says in the end of verse 13 I acted ignorantly unbelief you see that I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, don't get Paul wrong here. He's not making excuses, okay? He's not trying to smooth the waters, as it were, and make out himself being not as bad as he really was. He's not doing that. He's simply stating the fact of how it was back then with him. You see, Paul did not understand or even consider that he was desperately and sincerely wrong and, and that what he was doing back then carried with it serious ramifications. He did not understand that. He didn't even consider it. It never came into his framework. It never came into his worldview. It's a bit like you traveling 80 k's an hour. Just cruising Nicely. And then ping, you get pinged for doing 80ks in a 60-kilometer area. I know some of you have done that. I've done it. And so then we say, "But I didn't know it was a 60k area. I didn't know it was a 60k area. So I'm not at fault." Sorry, that won't cut it. That won't cut it. You try it, you will lose. Saul of Tarsus thought he was earnestly and faithfully serving God. He had rejected Jesus as an imposter and the gospel message as, as, a, as a false, fake message. And so, because of his religion, that was all that he could see and cling to was his religion, which is Judaism without Christ at that stage. His religious zeal saw him sincerely trying in his own effort to win his own salvation. You see, he was deceived. He was truly in a state of ignorance. He was in a state of blindness until Jesus came and opened his eyes. My dear people, how much of Paul's life, mirrors that of our own. So before we come down too hard on on Paul here, we need to take a closer look at ourselves, right? Though we may have never been blasphemers and persecutors of the church like Saul of Tarsus, we are still all guilty as charged by God, just as Paul was. You know that? Exactly. Before we came to Jesus Christ in faith, all our religion, all our good living, all our ignorance, sincerity... Count for nothing in God's reckoning. You understand that? It counts for nothing. In God's law, it is clear that you break one part of God's law, you are guilty of them all. That's pretty easy to understand. Romans three, verse ten to twelve says this. This is Paul speaking to another church, church of Rome. There is none righteous. Not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God all have turned aside together they have all become useless there is none who does good there is not even one what an indictment on mankind but that's how it is in verse 23 of that same chapter says for all have sinned just to make sure we don't the readers don't just get it for all have sinned and come short of the glory of god This is what we once were, folks. This is how we were. So don't come out too hard down a poor. We were all ignorant. We were all blinded. We all couldn't understand. The fact that we've all sinned and come short of God's standard is God's summary statement of every sinner of which we all are. We have nothing to brag about. We were lost and completely undone before the Lord. We were wicked to the core, deserving what? Deserving God's wrath of eternal hell, just like Saul of Tarsus, before the Lord and grace found him and opened his eyes to the way of salvation. Paul explains in two Corinthians four four: the God of this is what Paul says to another church: the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. How clear is that? All lost sinners are blind to their real spiritual condition and eternal destiny before God. They are ignorant of the truth of the gospel. So, folks, can I say this? Don't get too upset or angry or frustrated or bang your head against the wall when someone doesn't respond to the gospel maybe even in your own family or maybe your spouse or maybe your neighbor, whoever it is, don't get too frustrated because their eyes are blind. They cannot see and where they're at, they think they're on the very right path. They're deceived sinners just like the sword of Tarsus was, just like you and I were before we came to faith. Paul says to Ephesians, to this Ephesian church, Chapter 2, verse 1, we were once dead in trespasses and sins, blinded, dead. You can't get anything more dead than dead. And just so you know, a spiritually dead person cannot see or help himself. None of us in our sinful state could see our condition, our need. We could not see the way, the truth, and the life. We could not see the way off the broad road that leads to destruction to the narrow road that leads to eternal life. We could not see or understand that. We may have heard it. It may have come into our minds, but it was chased out immediately by our perception, by our worldview, by our understanding, by whatever gripped us, by the God of this world who has blinded our eyes. That's how it was. That's how it is with unbelievers. You see, folks, it's only until the Holy Spirit quickens us, as the King James Version says, or makes us alive and regenerates us and points us to Jesus Christ that we are sinners and in need of a saviour, that is when we see Jesus. And then Paul sums up his testimony by claiming the title of being chief of sinners or the foremost of all sinners. We see that at the end of verse 15. I believe Paul is saying two things here. Firstly, he's saying, this is what I was. I was bad to the bone. Bad to the bone. I was as sinful as any man could be before the Lord saved me. I was bad. Then with the one word he refers to, His present tense, you see there, he didn't say I was, he says I am, the foremost of sinners, I am, the chief of sinners. In other words, although now a believer, what Paul does here is as an apostle, he still acknowledges his present woeful sinfulness. But you know what? There was a difference. There was a difference. The difference is now is that he is a saved sinner, a saved sinner. Now, many in our day would shut Paul down at this stage. Would shut him down and insist that he only speak good about himself uh, in order to restore his self esteem, etc., cetera, etc., and to think more positively in order to portray a slick Christian image. Because, you know, us Christians, we're all good people, right? You know, some of the world think, "Oh, there's those Christians, they, they think they never do anything wrong. Well, that's wrong. We know that we sin. I know that I still sin. The Apostle Paul knows that he still sinned, even as a super-apostle, if you want to put that tag name on him. He says, "I am the foremost of sinners in the present tense. And as we know, folks, we are not good. Jesus said to the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, no one is good except God. God alone. And see, Paul, the apostle Paul, knew the truth of his own sinfulness. And here what he does is he humbly acknowledges that he was not and he could not live out on a daily basis perfectly God's holy standard. And that really frustrated him. Every true believer is frustrated about that, right? Or should be. We long to be holy. We long to be better. Because we have these new desires. We have new ideals as Christians. We have a new worldview. But we often fail. We sin. I know that and I'm sure you know that. But the difference is, folks, now we have an intercessor who ever makes intercession for us and forgives us of our sins when we come to him and confess our sins. That's the difference. That, the difference is that we are now gloriously saved sinners. And so Paul struggled with this sins of the flesh, as he tags it, in his Christian life in Romans chapter 7. This is what he says, and you'll know this text well, many of you, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. This is the apostle speaking here, by the way. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh, for the, w- for the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. You see his frustration? We know this struggle. From time to time, it really hits us. And Paul knew it as well. By the way, I hope you struggle with this. I really do hope you struggle with this. Because when we know and have and experience this this struggle, it's indicative of the new life that's in us. So next time you struggle with sin, be encouraged. Because there's a battle going on between the old nature or the the flesh and the, and the new life of Christ in you. Because if there's no struggle when you sin and if you just carry on like the world, if there's no struggle, I would be really concerned whether you are in the faith or not, because there's maybe no new life in you at all. Paul's life is a testimony of a sinner who was eternally saved. And that never again would he be lost in his sin without Christ. Even though he struggled with sins of the flesh. I think one of the songs that we sang, so I love those songs that were chosen this morning, indicated that we struggle with sin, but we look for the day when even our bodies will be redeemed and fully transformed. No more sin. No more struggle. We are saved sinners, but once we were lost, now we are found. And Jesus found us by God's abundant grace. And you know what? We were once lost sinners, but now he's made us what? Saints. Sanctified ones. Set apart. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians verse 6 and 11. Chapter 6 and verse 11. He says there to the Corinthian believers, and such were some of you and he's and he had prior to this he had listed a whole lot of horrendous sinful actions abominable actions he says in such are some of you but you are washed you are sanctified but you are justified in the name of the lord jesus christ and in the spirit of our god isn't it wonderful to be in christ to be a saved sinner this brings us to my second point the saint's testimony so we had the sinner's testimony, but we have the saint's testimony of God's abundant grace. We see this in, um, in uh, 13 and, and 15. In these two verses, well, 13, 14, probably even goes into 15. In these two verses, what Paul tells us here is of two great gifts that come from the Lord that resulted in his uh, salvation. And those two great gifts were mercy and grace. In His mercy, that's number one. In His mercy, God held back the wrath and the condemnation of hell that Saul of Tarsus deserved. Okay, that's gift number one. God's mercy was an action; it held back the wrath that He deserved. But gift number two, in grace, God poured out on him blessing and eternal salvation that he did not deserve. That's what mercy and grace is. Mercy is God holding back from us what we do deserve because we have broken God's law and sinned against him. But grace is pouring out on us lavishly what we do not deserve. It was mercy that held off the wrath of God when Paul was persecuting the church and blaspheming the name and message of Jesus. That was mercy that held that back, his wrath. But it was grace that came to him on that day in Damascus Road and confronted Saul of Tarsus concerning his sin and then saved his soul. We read of that in Acts chapter 9. That was grace and action on that day in Paul's life. And Paul tells us that the grace that sought him and brought him was what? We see here, was abundant or or more than abundant, exceedingly abundant. This one word in the Greek means that God has more grace than Paul needed. It was greater by far than all his sin. And once again, we've sung something more of that this morning. Paul picks up the same thread in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, and where he says, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Or let me slap my own words on this. Where my sin gripped me and took me deeper and deeper, God's grace flooded over and superabounded much more. By the way, another little grammar lesson here. When Paul says that he obtained mercy or found mercy in verse 13 and again repeated in verse 16 that phrase is what we call a passive in, in a passive voice don't worry don't get bogged down with what that means but what it does mean is that because it was passive in a passive voice it means that that Paul wasn't the initiator of this mercy he didn't go out and seek this mercy he didn't get down on his knees and say god show mercy not in Paul's case, this wasn't the case. God's mercy on this occasion for Paul was not some divine favor that only became active when it is sought for and pleaded after. That's not how it says here. It's in a passive voice, as I said before. In this case, God's mercy reached out and sheltered him. Just like God and mercy is holding back judgment, can I say, from our nation of Australia because of its decisions and actions and wayward government and trends. Just like God is, holding, is showing mercy to us and protecting us, that's what he did to the Apostle Paul. Even when he was a violent aggressor, he never came down and took him out. He could have, but God showed mercy. Mercy reached down to where he was and protected him. Folks, we are all here this morning, those of us who are believers, we are too saved because of these two gifts. By the hand of a gracious and merciful God. You see, it was God's mercy that held off his wrath when we wandered away in darkness and deadness of sin. Think about that. All those years that we might refer to as the locust has eaten, those wasted years, God was holding back. God in mercy was reaching out. God was holding back his wrath that we rightfully deserved. We sung this morning, streams of mercy never ceasing. You see, God is merciful. And it was his grace that reached out to us in love to confront us with our sin. And his righteousness. And it was his grace that called us to faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so you have been saved by grace through faith. As I often say, grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Solidae Dea gloria. To God be the glory alone. Amen. Praise the Lord that God's grace is far more abundant than our sins. Now, listen up here, folks, because this means something wonderful. No saved sinner is going to heaven by just scraping in or by the seat of your pants, as we might say, or even by the skin of your teeth. That just ain't going to happen. You are going to heaven held tightly by God's grip of grace and mercy. And you cannot get anything more secure than that. Sovereign grace and sovereign mercy. Jesus says in John 10, no one can pluck them out of my hand. We are securely saved, folks, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. This grace was not only more abundant for Paul's salvation. It is also more abundant to securely save all those who come to faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's great news, right? So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not sure, and you haven't attested me to tell, you can know Jesus Christ this morning, today, by coming to him in faith and believing what he said. But also in verse 14, we see included in this salvation package, can I put it, something more than mercy and grace when a sinner is saved. Uh, this salvation, you see, was not only a escape hatch, wasn't it wasn't an escape hatch from God's wrath. When God's saving grace transform a sinner into saint, we also see that that sinner receives, with God's grace, faith and love. Faith and love. You see that? Now, when he saved Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul, one was his Hebrew name, one, Paul is his Greek name. Paul was given, can I say, the wherewithal, the inner capacity, the heart, to enable him to believe, to have faith in Jesus Christ, whom he had formerly denied and blasphemed and vilified. Faith was a gift from God. And this, with this grace also came love. And this love allowed him to love the Lord and the very people that he formerly hated. That's amazing, right? It's a complete turnaround. If you want to see transformation, just have a look at this. Faith and love are the traits and trademarks of genuine believers. And it's not as if we just receive a dose of faith that whereby we can trust in Jesus and then carry on in normal way. No, no, no. God gives us faith. And it doesn't take a great amount of faith either. He talks about that. He says, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, remember that? It doesn't take a great amount of faith to be saved. It just takes simple faith. Faith in what God has said concerning his son is true and that he died for your sin and my sin on the cross and believing we go free. That's the faith that you are given and that's the faith you need to exercise. But he doesn't just leave it there. You see, that faith grows. That faith is nurtured and develops and grows and grows and grows and grows into the deeper things of God so he gives us faith but he also gives us love Paul could say of the Ephesian believers on another occasion in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 15 this is what he could say of them I have heard of your faith there it is in the Lord Jesus and here it is again and your love for all the saints there's the faith and love there's the two aspects that come with the salvation package This is what God's grace and salvation does for the person who believes. It causes you to believe things that you once doubted or disbelieved and it causes you to love things and those that you have hated or been indifferent about. It turns you around. In other words, salvation will transform your life completely, totally and eternally. Wonderful thing to be saved, right? And finally, we see here the servant's testimony of God's grace on display. We see this in verses 6, 12 and verse 16 and verse 17. And Paul, like any true believer, he understood that God's saving grace is it's just not an act of God for a person's own personal benefit. Sometimes we think like that and sometimes it's preached like that. Come to Jesus and everything will be fine and go on your merry way. No, no, no. Or live how you like. No, that's not how it is at all. In verse 12, Paul thanks God for what? He thanks God for his grace in what? In strengthening, that is, for enabling him to serve in the ministry. In other words, whom the Lord calls in salvation, he enables. He enables. Or put it plainly, he gives... The believing sinner, the wherewithal to serve in the ministry. You ever thought about that? What this means is that the enabling or strengthening to serve in the ministry, what it does, it proves the call of God in a person's life to serve in the field or whatever that may be. You see, Paul, so thank God for considering him faithful and putting him in the ministry. You see, Paul did not choose to go into ministry. He did not apply for the the job of of, of being an itinerant evangelist and an itinerant teacher, etc., as to what he did, or an itinerant church planter. He didn't apply for that job, no way. He wasn't some professional preacher. A little bit different from what we have today. I do get a little frustrated when pastoral positions are seen more like some professional CEO applying for a job in an office block. It's not that. It's not that at all. You see, the apostle Paul became a preacher and an apostle by the will of God alone. You see, the Lord took him and put him where he wanted him to serve. And when he was placed there, Paul served faithfully for the glory of God. By the way, this is a subject of Paul's challenge to Timothy as well. As we see this in verses 17 to 19 that we haven't read yet at the end of the chapter. It was a challenge. And what I say, this is exactly the same with all of us, every one of us here who are saved. The Lord chooses our place of ministry and he gifts us according to what field of service that he would providentially arrange for us. That's according to Romans chapter 12, or 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. No, you will not hear an audible voice or see a vision in the night from God calling you into ministry like the apostle. But God still chooses for us areas of service. And then what he does, he providentially arranges the circumstances so that we can make ourselves available, whatever they might be, to serve him. That's why it's so cool to see people putting their hand up and serving in the local church. It's so good to see that. It's so encouraging to us. All to see people just getting in and helping out and serving in whatever area they can. You see, our duty is to use His gifting, God's gifting, by faithfully serving Him wherever He places us in the local church. For you know what? For we are saved to serve. We're not saved just to escape the fires of hell. We are saved to serve. Genuine believers are those who will be marked by a willingness to serve in whatever capacity and whatever place he equips us for his glory. Even in this little church of you community. Are you a willing servant? How do I know this? Well, Paul tells us here in verse 16. You see, because Paul is God's grace on display. He's our pattern. He's our example for any to follow and consider. In other words, Paul says as a living testimony, if God can show mercy and patience to me and use me in the ministry for his glory, he has the grace and mercy to save anyone who would come to him in faith For eternal life and use them for his glory. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. And this is why the Lord has saved us as well. He saved us to be his showpieces, to put his grace on display to a lost and a dying world. And that's what we are, folks. We are God's trophies, trophies of grace. We are living testimonies of His grace and power. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And then finally, Paul, unable to contain his joy about his salvation and about how the Lord had put him in the ministry and how he he was able to serve the Lord, he is unable to contain, and he becomes a song leader. And he burst out in song. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. Amen. Now, folks, I wonder if you have a testimony to tell of how God's grace invaded your life, bringing about salvation by faith alone and Christ alone in order to serve God alone for his glory. Have you got a testimony to tell for that? As you might know, as we began begun with John Newton, And you will know probably his story, but I'll repeat it again. John Newton was a wild, drunken sailor. His language was so foul, his blasphemy so terrible that his unregenerate captain rebuked him He was often put in irons and whipped for his rebellion. He became a slave trader, falling even further into sin. He narrowly escaped death on a number of times. And finally, after nearly perishing in a severe storm, he turned to God and was saved. Even so, he remained a slave trader for a few years. Eventually, by God's grace, he became a pastor and we all know him for the writing of the hymn Amazing Grace. And as we've learned a couple of years ago, there are many other beautiful hymns that John Newton wrote. But he wrote this in bold letters and put it on the mantle in his study where he could see it every time he was in his office. He wrote Deuteronomy 15:15, 15, 15. Thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. He also wrote his own epithet, which read, John Newton, Clark, once an infidel, and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach, the faith he had long labored to destroy. You see, folks, John Newton never forgot that he was a great sinner who had found great or greater mercy and grace in Christ. Neither did the Apostle Paul forget. Neither should we. Neither should we. May each and every one of us know what it is to tell of a testimony of God's grace and mercy in our lives. Shall we stand? I want to close with a benediction this morning. This is from 2 Corinthians nine eight. Just bow our heads as I read this out. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. And the people of God said, Amen.